Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell class. It's funny because we uh, just met last week. We have not interrupted the schedule in any way, but transitioning from the book to the miniseries, uh, it makes me feel like more time has passed. I was, I, I wanted to, at the beginning, I wanted to say, welcome back. You know, I haven't seen you in a while. I don't know why I have that sense of gap, uh, but I do. Um, it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting, you know, maybe it's the sense of, uh, almost like beginning again, you know, going back to the beginning of the story and looking at the, at the, the, the adaptation of it. Uh, I don't know what it is, but anyway, welcome, welcome back in any case, uh, even though we met just last week. Um, before we start, I wanted to make one quick announcement with one important announcement, and that is uh, we have uh, announced our officials uh, lineup for our spring courses uh, at Signum University. So I just wanted to share that. Here is our list of courses. We have the Inklings in Science Fiction with Dr. Douglas Anderson um, that is looking at not only the science fiction written by the Inklings, it's going to be sort of centered on the, the science fiction works written by Lewis and Tolkien and sort of their thoughts about and attitude towards and uh, sort of approach to science fiction, but also looking at some of the science fiction works that influenced them from the period before and also the science fiction they went on to continue reading and thinking about afterwards. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it should be, it should be, it, it'll be basically a really interesting look at that whole sort of era of science fiction there in the middle of the of the 20th century, sort of through the lens of the Inklings and their interest. It should be really fascinating. And of course, Douglas Anderson um, is, you know, is the author of the Annotated Hobbit and just one of the uh, one of the, the the most wonderful and most meticulous scholars uh, of Tolkien and the Inklings and and basically sort of the history of 20th century publication of fantasy and science fiction literature. So um, it'll be a, a wonderful opportunity to study that. Uh, uh, with uh, uh, with Professor Anderson. Um, our second class is a class that has been long anticipated. Language Invention Through Tolkien. Exploring a Shared Secret Vice. And that is with Dr. Andrew Higgins featuring guest lectures by Dimitri Femi and Carl Hostetter. Many of you have been asking for a course on Tolkien's languages, uh, on Tolkien's elvish languages, and this is it. Um, and in this class, we're not, you're not only going to be studying uh, Tolkien's Elvish languages, but really looking at them in the context of invented languages as a whole, uh, even looking at invented languages beyond Tolkien, the nature of invented languages, uh, and how they work in their relationship with story. Um, of course, Carl uh, 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 Hostetter, who's going to be the first time he's going to be um, uh, appearing with us, and Carl Hostetter is one of the greatest living experts on Tolkien's Elvish languages, so that'll be a really great opportunity to hear from him about uh, about Tolkien's Elvish languages. And I'm going to be teaching Modern Fantasy 2. I taught a Modern Fantasy class several years back in which I did a sort of a, a, a little survey, a little sort of sampling of fantasy literature since Tolkien. Um, by popular demand, I'm going to do that again, but I'm doing it again with totally different books. So I'm going to be looking at some uh, fantasy from, uh, from the 80s and then from uh, the last few decades, uh, another kind of sampling of, uh, of six works that we're going to be reading. We're going to be reading Dagger Spell by Catherine Kerr. That's one of our 1980s books. Uh, Hard Magic by Larry Correa, the first volume of the Grim Noir Chronicles. Uh, the Furies of Calderon by Jim Butcher, the first uh, book of the Codex Alera. Uh, and uh, the first two books of the Belgariad by David Eddings. I'm kind of sneaking those in and counting them as one because they're short compared to uh, some of the other really thick tomes. Uh, Dragonflight 
by Anne McCaffrey, and finally The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. So um, those are going to be the books we're going to cover in my modern fantasy class. Uh, I've been uh, uh, sort of reading and reviewing and thinking a lot about that class, so I'm I'm, I'm excited for that. And we are also offering our Latin 1 class again. Um, So four classes coming through this coming spring. So just wanted to make sure everybody knew that those classes were coming. Um, there will be more information and uh, the registration for those will open very soon, but just to make sure that people kind of have that have those in mind. Think about if you might want to audit a class or take a class for credit. Um, those are going to be the courses we're going to be offering in the spring. All right. Well, if there are no questions or anything, then let's go on and start talking about the miniseries, because we've got a lot of things to talk about, and I don't want to get too terribly behind. Um, I'm going to do the thing that I usually do, uh, uh, that is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to show clips. Because when I look at video, when I look at movies, um, just as when I read uh, books, when we talk about books, I always want to... Um, uh, I always want to do close reading. You know, I don't want to just summarize and kind of vaguely talk about it, but really look at it and think carefully about what's going on. Um, so, oh, thank you, Timothy. Thank you for reminding me. I had almost forgotten that. Um, we are planning to do a Riddles in the Dark reunion episode, uh, and uh, we've been planning that for uh, for Friday evening of this week, actually, at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, um, to talk about the extended edition of the Battle of Five Armies, which has finally been released. So, um, so yes, Timothy, as far as I know, that is still on. Uh, we're still sort of waiting for some final confirmation but yeah 9 30 p.m eastern time that's what we've been that's what we've been planning um so uh <laughs> Krita says i have so many feelings about that i uh i i feel exactly the same way um okay let's get to talking about uh talking about the miniseries before we move on so i there there, there are three major topics i want to hit on now and and, and let me talk a little bit about what I'm what I'm interested in discussing tonight primarily. Of course we're gonna be on the one hand, you know, sort of going over air you know, stuff that we've been talking about in the book, right? Um but the first thing just, you know, to make sure that we kind of set the parameters I want to make it clear, you know, to sort of give the same, well, I was about to say disclaimer, but it's not a disclaimer. To to give this, you know, sort of the overview um sort of the directive statement uh, that to me is so important when you're looking at an adaptation. And that is, we can't think about this like it's the same story, right? It's not the same story. Whenever you do a film adaptation of a book, you're not just taking the book and putting it on the screen. The, I find, in my own experience, the best way to think about this is it's a retelling of the story, just like, you ha- you know, just as if you had one person who was telling somebody else, you know, retelling or, or, or writing down for somebody else's benefit, um, a story written by somebody else. It's, it's a retelling of the story. It's not the same story. Um, and so I want to be looking at uh, not just sort of ways in which this is similar or different from the book. Of course, those things will come up and we'll talk about those things. But what I really want to focus on as we discuss here is what is the focus of this story, of this version of the story? So it's not so much about what did they get right and what did they what did they get wrong? I mean, I am going to be inevitably talking about things that I think they did really well and things that I think they did rather poorly, but but I'm going to try to discipline myself to focus primarily on again what I think what 
what is the story that they're telling, right? Let's sort of try to open ourselves up, not just to sort of passing judgment or saying, like, again, it's right or wrong. It's But, yes, Karita, exactly. It's a separate work of art. Um, and I want us to think about it on its terms and really be sensitive to the story that it's telling. Because there's, the, you know, on the one hand, there's no doubt about the fact that this is quite a faithful adaptation. I was really impressed by that. Um, faithful in the sense, though, notice again the, the sort of slant that that word has, right? As if to deviate significantly from the book is to be to be unfaithful, right? To it's It's like a form of betrayal in some sense, which is not necessarily true. But anyway, whatever. Um, it's a close adaptation. It sticks very closely to the book in many ways. And, uh, and I, I, was, I was very impressed. I was very interested to see how close it stuck. But that doesn't mean it's exactly the same. And I thought that there were a bunch of things in it um, that were, to me, really fascinating. Of course, one of the first and biggest things that I would bring up is the way that it brings in Jonathan Strange's story, right? The, the structure of the story, the architecture of the story, um, is one thing which was quite remarkably different, right? That is how Jonathan Strange's story begins so much earlier on, and it's going back and forth between Strange and Norrell with a persistence, and far earlier on, um, far different from how the book presented things. And I think that that has a profound effect on the story. We don't get what we got in the book, which is a front-end um, focused exclusively on Norrell to the point where we're left just kind of guessing who is this Jonathan Strange who's in the title of the book, right? And who has been referenced in a couple footnotes. Like, we know he's not just a, a dummy title, right? I mean, we we, we know, well, I, you know, I think we know he's going to come in at some point, but it takes a long, long time for us to really get there. And if even if you just think about the the titles of the three parts of the book, right? Uh, you know, Mr. Norrell, Jonathan Strange, and John Usklaus. It, uh, you know, it, it sort of shows the way that the book is sort of structured and how the focal point of the story kind of shifts as it goes along. That's not, clearly not, how uh, how the miniseries works. And so I thought that that was one one really interesting thing from the beginning, which puts, especially puts Jonathan Strange in a different footing and in particular, in a different relationship to Mr. Norrell, not between them, that is, it doesn't mean that they interact differently, but it puts them on a different footing in our own minds. And again, one of the consequences of this, you remember that prophecy, right? When when Vincula starts talking about the first and the second, in our mind, we are absolutely predisposed about who's the first and who's the second, right? I mean, there's no question about this. Um, because although, you know, even in the miniseries, we know that Norrell came first, and he's been a magician longer than Jonathan Strange. We see Jonathan Strange live on screen discover his magic, right? So it's still obvious which one is first, but it doesn't it doesn't hit us quite the same, right? Because Mr. Norrell is absolutely first. He is, he is the one um, whom you know, whose acquaintance we make thoroughly, um, and Jonathan Strange is the Johnny Come Lately in our experience reading the book. So, um, anyway, there, there are a number of, of consequences, I think, of that particular choice, and we might come back to some of those. But there are three, the three things that I really want to emphasize, the three things that really jumped out at me, um, as things that I want to talk about to, as we kind of set the stage here in, uh, you know, in, this, in our first class on the adaptation, um, in thinking about the particular focus of this telling of the story, um, 
Uh, Those three topics are, first, their depiction of Mr. Norrell and his attitude towards the restoration of English magic. Okay, that's number one. Number two is the depiction of Jonathan Strange, and in particular, the way that they depict the contrast between Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And then third, I want to look at fairy and their depiction of fairy, and in particular, their depiction of the gentleman with the thistle-down hair, and especially in particular, uh, their depiction of his relationship with Mr. Norrell. Okay, all right, so that's what we're going to do. I had had I had briefly uh, sort of fostered wild and, uh, uh, and, and reckless hopes of also talking about Stephen Black and Stephen Black's uh, introduction into fairy, but um, then I, 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 you know, had a, I sort of sat down and had a cold drink and, you know, mopped my brow and said, that's just not going to happen. I have to be realistic about that. So I think I'm going to save Stephen Black for next time. But um, definitely want to look at Norrell, look at Strange, and then look at the gentleman and, again, the whole way that Fairy is depicted here. So that is our challenge here tonight to attempt uh, to get through all of those things. So let's start. Um, Thinking about the depiction of Norrell, now, one thing that I would say, even before I before we look at our first clip, um, is I was fascinated by the choice of how they introduced Mr. Norrell. You remember the distinction of how they introduced him in the book, you'll recall. Um, Norrell sends them a... You know, they, they, they know of, of Norrell. They've heard of Norrell. They're not especially interested in Norrell because they, you know, they, he doesn't come to their society, so if he's not in their society, why should they care? There are rumors that he has this big... Uh, library, but, you know, they don't really seem to put much stock in it. Um, And, you know, remember, he's corresponded with the society and sent a letter to them and everything. So, um, you know, it's when Segundus and Honeyfoot um, end up going down to Hurtview, they're just kind of following up on this um, because they're interested in pursuing the, you know, they're wanting to go down to his library in pursuance of their quest. Remember how it's introduced differently in the miniseries that no, nobody knows about Norrell. Norrell has kept himself... The, the society knows nothing of Norrell, right? He is a dead secret to them. Um, in other words, one conclusion I think that we can draw from the beginning of the... from the way the adaptation begins. The adaptation depicts Norrell as more secretive than the book does. He hides himself away more thoroughly. He never corresponds with the society. They don't know who he is. Um, And in fact, even the relationship with the booksellers, this of course is how he's discovered, right? Segundus has to jump over the counter and do sleuth work, which I I quite like, actually. Um, He has to, you know, so he he, he sort of has to discover... um, Okay, well, it doesn't use hooks, so I guess it's just by crook. Though he doesn't exactly steal anything either. But anyway, um, he has to find out one way or another who it is who's buying up all the books, even somewhat unscrupulously purchasing the books that he himself had reserved already, right? Um, and so by discovering of this, um, he that's how he learns that Mr. Norrell exists, and he goes to he wants to find him because he knows all of the books are there. Right, so he's he's going in pursuit of magic in a different way than he is in the book. Um, but again, notice that Mr. Norrell's acquisitions of the book are much more secretive than they are in the book. In the book, it's quite publicly everybody knows it's Mr. Norrell, right? Um, 
it, you know, it's the the book um, the bookstore owners uh, the the booksellers openly acknowledge the fact that um, you know a gentleman named Mr. Norrell came and bought all the books. Um, so again, he's 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 known in the in the film version. He's not known. Um, he is much more secretive. And again, that I find um, a really a really fascinating point. As a sort of side note, I would also say I think that the way that they use that business in the bookstore with Segundus finding out who Noro is, that is an admirable piece of compression. I mean, obviously one of the big challenges, you know, to putting on a uh, a film version, even you know, what a seven hour film version, because it's a miniseries instead of a feature film. Um doing a, even a seven hour film version of a you know, such a long book, right? You know, of this uh of this near thousand page book. Um, is a huge challenge, right? How do you compress that uh, to that to, to that amount of time? Um, you know, to read the the book unabridged aloud takes over thirty hours. Um, so you know, you know, there's much that needs to be compressed. Um, Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell, the book certainly has a lot of bits that are much easier to cut than many other books are. I will have to admit. Um, but um but anyway it's 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 still challenging and i love the work that they did there by through that one scene of having segundus have to have to get to the bottom of who's been hoarding all the books we both get the sort of discovery of noral and segundus's pursuit of noral which kicks off that whole his whole visit as well as um showing his miserliness right introducing us to Norrell, not only Norrell's secrecy, um, but also uh, also his uh, miserly attitude towards books. Um, so I thought that that was really fascinatingly done. Where I want to start, the first clip I want to look at today is the arrival, um, the, the arrival of uh, Segundus and Honeyfoot at Hurtview. So let us, see, I think I should have everything set up here so that this works properly. Let's see how we do. Can I just say for a second here, and I'm going to be interrupting clips at times. Um, not all the time. I hope not compulsively. But um, I, uh, I, I, first of all, I love Childermas. I think that Childermas, in general, actually, I would say I really like the casting. Um, I have few, I have few objections about the casting. Um, I have a couple question marks, um, but. But in general, I thought the casting was brilliant, and I think that Childemus is absolutely fantastic. I love how uh, how they did Childemus, and um, it may also be I have a I have a a real soft spot for Yorkshire accents. I have to admit, and I love how the Childemus guy does uh, does his Yorkshire accent. But anyway, uh, in addition to just sort of gushing about how much I love Childemus, um, uh, I want to just point out here. Notice. We, Childermas tells them that the way is, and he pauses and says, convoluted. Now, 
I don't know if we're actually getting the magical labyrinth. One thing, of course, which is much harder for them to convey on screen than it is for the narrator to tell us about it in the book, is that experience that Segundus has, that sort of sense of strangeness, which from which we can infer, if we're reading carefully and are clever and thoughtful, as I was not when I first read it, of course, as you'll recall my confessing, um, we can pick up on the fact that there's magic going on, right? And they, I don't see any visual cues in their depiction here that really leads us to that conclusion. Um, so, yeah, Nancy Fosberg says it's his real accent. Well, all the better then. I mean, then he's got an awesome accent, you know. So, um, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, so, so yeah, so and, and so I thought that that was a really, a really kind of interesting um, choice of them here to not really make it clear that there's any sort of magic going on. Um, by the way, please do, a couple of you have been uh, making observations here as we go, but I, I, I strongly encourage you to do, to do that as I'm showing a clip. Um, make sure to type down and, and, uh, and send in any observations that you have along the way, because I want us to be doing careful observations uh, of, the, uh, of the, the passages, which I'm probably going to call them, uh, the scenes from the from the from the film here, um, good. Now, there, you, John, you're right that there is mysterious noise. There, is, I mean, it is sort of suspenseful music. Really like the score, by the way, as well. Um, uh, but uh, but but it's still to me, it's still. I don't see any unequivocal cue um, that magic is going on. Though I suppose you could argue, um, at least in self-defense, I would want to argue perhaps that the scene in the book isn't unequivocally uh, uh, directive either. But anyway, um, Sarah, I agree with you. Sarah Lagarde says the atmosphere is very dark uh, in Hurtview and all through the series. But yes, especially in Hurtview, the fact that, um, Sarah, they're, they're, they're clearly passing through darkness and you can see almost nothing other than, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the candlestick that Childermas is holding. Um, I, I agree. I think that's an important element here. Watch when they open out into the library. I love the way that this is done. What if I just turned around? Nothing would be more agreeable to him. Um, excellent. Okay, a few things that I would want to point out here. First, let's go back a bit. Uh, I love, as I said, I love the visuals of the opening. Um, 
here's... I just laughed and laughed when I saw this. You come in, right? And it's it's really impressive. You can see on the one hand, um, it's, you know, this this view of the library. On the one hand, it's, you know, it, it looks, you know, the vaulted ceilings and everything, right? It looks like some kind of, some kind of, you know, mausoleum. It's really, it's really, uh, it does not look homey, right? This does not look like a room you would just kind of like curl up in and enjoy a book, right? This looks like some kind of, um, back wing of a museum that people aren't normally allowed into, right? And yet, the ladders, especially all the ladders in different places and the books sitting around on the tables and everything suggests this is actually, you know, a working library. I love the light coming in through the windows in the back, not only showing, of course, the age of the building, um, but, of course, you know, the that, that vision of, like, rays of light, you know, the, the illumination pouring in and yet most of the most of the library in darkness. But even more than that, look at the proportions here. So Okay, so we come around the corner and <clears throat> we are seeing Mr. Norrell, the magician, for the first time, right? So we come around the corner and there he is. Look how tall and noble he stands, right? And then, see, here comes Childemus. And then right here, it's like, wait a second. Actually, he's a little short isn't he? Right? And Childress comes in and steps up and it's like, holy cow, actually he's a shrimp, right? I love the, the, the kind of optical illusion that it creates. You know, we come around the corner and it's like, and there's the great man himself. Uh, uh, okay. Maybe maybe not so great a man. Uh, the kind of the joke about Mr. Norrell's stature and the more you zoom in, the more puny he begins to look until especially then, you know, when he's standing near, uh, nearer to Childemus, it's pretty clear that Childemus is like, <laughs> like, like eight inches taller than he is. Um, and I think that that's, um, hilarious. And then of course we see his first comment, right? You know, his guests are standing there in awe and the very first thing he says, right? Here, let's creditable piece of work. That was must have fallen thought, was there not? He doesn't even say hello. He doesn't introduce himself or he just immediately comments on he's told the name, right? He hears the name John Segundus and just immediately starts talking about the thing that he wrote, right? Which is on the one hand, like, a little bit of a compliment, like, I totally read that thing that, you know, Segundus, you know, are, sort of with uh, at least an attempt at modesty referred to the small contribution that he made, right, uh, to the number of magical publications. Uh, you know, remember back during the meeting of the York Society, um, so on the one hand, it's a great sort of stroking of his ego that Mr. Norrell has uh, has read him, even though, of course, he's immediately critical. But again, it's the lack of anything like social graces in Mr. Norrell, right? He doesn't... Okay, no introductions, no, no kind of social or intellectual sort of foreplay of any kind, right? Uh, he's just immediately uh, plunges in in the middle of this you know, conversation, like, if I were, you know, Segundus, I would be sort of thinking, uh, did I miss half of this conversation, right? Um, I mean, like, what on earth are we talking about? Anyway, it's, um, 
it's it's I think really really well done. We get this immediate impression of how awkward Norrell is, right? Um, not shy about speaking about his favorite subject, right? But um, but completely completely awkward. Um, Kimber Nelson says it's like Norrell's version of hospitality, right? To uh, half compliment and half criticize uh, Segundus. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Nancy, I do agree that Mr. Norrell is really kind of adorable. I mean, there are a whole bunch of scenes, which I'm sure we'll, 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 we'll talk about a few of them, where I feel like he's just, he's so cute, I want to just put him in my pocket. But um, anyway, okay, so after this, let me... Um, So, he's... so, and Segundus segues back to, um, okay, that's very interesting, but holy cow, what a library, right? Like, that's like kind of what he wanted to open with instead of with, like, the awkward criticism. Um, and, uh, you know, Mr. Honeyfoot is like, do you, would you mind if we, uh, you know, and then look what, look what Norrell does immediately. Looks over at Childermas. And Childermas is staring back at him. At which point, he says, "Oh no, um, no, nothing would give me more pleasure." Right? He says, with an enormously pleased expression. I have to say, right? Um, what? What do you make of this? What do you see there? I found that little moment really significant. Um, and it really seems to me not to make something up out of whole cloth. It's there in the book. But I thought it was it was really foregrounded in the film version. <laughs> Kimber Nelson says Childermas is his social coach. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, see, you could say, and Michael was saying this too. Michael Cheskovsky was also saying that um, it's, it's, it's like uh, he's checking with Childermas about the correct uh, social protocol. Yeah. But I think there's more to it than that. It's not just like, let me look at somebody who's not socially incompetent and see what the correct answer is here. I kind of think there's really more to it. Um, Sarah, I agree with you. Sarah Lagarde says, it seems that Childermas is pushing Norrell forward where Norrell isn't comfortable. I agree. I, I, this look, um, from this look, I am sort of seeing a whole background series of conversations that have led up to this moment where Childermas is urging Norrell to reveal himself, to go public. Um, that is to say... Remember, the book shows us a Mr. Norrell who is awkward and who is shy and who likes to stay at home and who doesn't really want to go to London and who complains constantly about London when he's there. And yet, it shows us a Mr. Norrell who seems to be genuinely enthusiastic about restoring English magic. And at the same time that he's not comfortable being around people and all that, he also wants the attention himself. Um, remember even the way that Clark contextualized that moment when he says that he is himself a tolerable practical magician. You know, he sort of outs himself for the first time, right? Um, uh, 
Clark describes him as delivering this line, you know, that he had long wanted to deliver, right? This is, um, we are led to believe in the book now that when Mr. Norrell finally, you know, openly claims that he's a magician and goes to prove himself, that this is something that he's been wanting to do and leading up to for a really long time. In the film, I do not get that impression at all. He looks very reluctant. This expression says to me, he's just said nothing would give me more pleasure. This is not the look of somebody who says, I don't know how to behave when I'm you know, having guests. This is the look of somebody who says, I don't want to show them my library, but it's the thing that I'm supposed to do, right? I agreed that I would do this. And I love the way in which right after this, remember how in the book he goes and he critiques the boy. First he critiques uh, uh, Segundus' article, right? Then he critiques the books that they're reading. They're like, oh, you know, they, they find these books on the shelves and he's like, oh, don't, that book is awful. Don't pay any attention to that book. It's really quite, quite, quite worthless. Um, but in the film version, he says almost exactly the same things. Many of his lo- uh, words are line, wor- many of his lines are word for word uh, from the book, and yet it's clear that he's just trying to conceal them. Right? Um, he's saying, "No, no, no, it's not worth reading," because at that moment he's closing the book and taking it away from, just because he doesn't want them to read it. Right? Um, and again, I think that's it's different. He's engaging in an open dialogue with them in the book. Right? He's he's in fact, showing them his library. Now, he does seem to put a spell on them so that they don't remember it afterwards. Uh, But nevertheless, while they're there, it seems to be part of this desire that he has genuinely to, uh, to... uh, to go public and to bring about the return of English magic. Um, he seems actively resistant to that, um, in the film. And Childemus seems to be the one who is really, uh, who is really driving the thing. Um, yeah, manipulative, Michael, that's a really good word. He does seem to be manipulating. Now, well, the, my one, the one, um, reservation, Michael, I'd have about that word is that I, I, that might suggest that it's kind of behind the scenes, you know, or, or, or like sort of unspoken or I think it's, I don't get that impression at all. I think that Childermas has openly argued for this and won the argument that this is what really needs to happen. And Norrell has agreed to it, right? He's not, I don't think he's looking over at Childermas like you're the boss and I have to do what you want or, you know, you've maneuvered me into this position, drat you, but rather, you know, like, I know we agreed, right? This is what I'm supposed to do now. Yes. Okay. I don't want to do it, but you're right. I should. That's the, that's the, the impression, uh, that I get, uh, from this. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, anyway, so that I thought was, I thought was really, um, was really, was a very important element about Norrell. Because remember, it was one of the things in the book that we were sort of trying to reconcile. Um, that is, what's his real motivation? What's he trying to do? What's, what is the restoration of modern magic, uh, you know, about for Norrell. What does this really mean to him? Remember all of those things. Um, and he seems to be, in a sense, uh, in a sense, kind of more um, uh, divided in his mind, right? Less, he is far less than 100% sure. He seems less than 100% sure that he really wants to go through with this. And by the way, one of the other things that this sort of suggests, um, or rather one of the things that this sets up right after this is the, is the scene 
Um, okay, well, not immediately after this. We go back to the York Society uh, in the pub. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, right after that comes the scene in the in the cathedral, um, in the York non-minster, um, with the statues. And Childermas is there, right? They show up, and there's Childermas there, and he gives them the contract, and... Um, and then he's standing there looking at them, you know, as they're, you know, observing them as they're watching the magic happen and everything. The whole thing gives the impression, at least it gave me the impression, that Childemus is kind of the mastermind behind the whole thing. Um, even, for instance, the, the, you know, there are many places in the book where when Childemus is carrying out Mr. Norrell's orders, uh, the sort of unscrupulous orders that he has uh, that he gives, that Norrell gives you know, about quashing other magicians and and, uh, making them sign, you know, invidious contracts and things like that Um, you get the impression on multiple occasions that this clearly comes from Norrell and that Childermas is, if anything at times anyway, a bit reluctant to carry it out and that he clearly does not seem to be in full agreement with that the film gives a very different impression, I think. Um, again, he's he's the mover. This seems to have been his idea. At the very least, he's the one who's comfortable with it, and Norrell is not. So when he shows up with a contract at the door of the cathedral, um, it really kind of looks like this is his plan moving forward, and Norrell's back at home doing the magic like he's supposed to do. And Nancy, thank you for bringing that up. I meant to mention it. The fact that Childermas is the narrator... Right, we don't get much narration in the uh, in the story. I was interested to see that they started with voiceover, and it led me to expect a lot more voiceover, but we never got it. Um, just the opening lines, the introduction to the York Society of Magicians. Um, but again, the fact that that was Childermas's voice, Nancy, um, to me was also really influential. Right, it 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 suggests sort of Childermas's sort of persona behind the story as a kind of driving force, right? Like he's, as if, as if he's the, uh, uh, the, the, the teller of the story. Um, yeah, yeah. Janita, yeah, you're right. Janita Shelton points out that Childermas even says in the movie that pushing him to London society is his idea. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see him be much more forceful, uh, about that, much more open about that. Um, well, when they when he does get to London, um, uh, we see him driving through the Yellow Curtain district, right, with all the little tents and uh, and and lean tos and everything that uh, that the uh, street magicians have there in London. Um, I thought that visually that was really really effective, um, and of course notice how the first sight of Vinculus uh, includes him you know, talking about the Raven King and throwing the feathers out of his pocket, right? So we can see this sort of overt charlatanism of Vinculus on the one hand, right? I mean, he's just he's just got a pocket full of feathers and he's throwing them up in the air when he says the name of the Raven King. But it's also a good performance, right? I mean, we can see that he's an effective charlatan uh, and he's a good street performer. Um, but of course, we are also introduced to Neural's reaction against the Raven King, Um uh, you know, with the, the sort of the disgust that he looks at, and I, I love the way in which, visually, the you know sort of the Raven King and Norrell's repugnance at the Raven King is associated with the image of Vinculus. Um, 
so seeing this charlatan um, and him t- hearing him talking about the Raven King, we ha- we can have, I think, a kind of sympathy with Norrell's point of view. I mean, again, this is this is what the Raven King's all about, right? And it presents this uh, this image of 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 Vincius the charlatan as something that that we are kind of invited to associate with the Raven King, I think, uh, from the beginning. But anyway, since we're on the subject of Vincius, let's um, let's look at let's see here. Let's look at uh, uh, Mr. Norrell's meeting with Vincius. Now, remember the context of this. He's just left the party, right, the party that he he was convinced to go to, um, and he's just about to be introduced um, uh, by Drawlight, and he sneaks out so that when Drawlight goes to introduce him, there's nobody there, right? So again, notice that we see... um, his extreme aversion to public appearance, right? He had agreed to go out and be introduced, but then when it actually came to it, he like panics and runs away. Um, this also seems to me to suggest that he is lacking the full measure of vanity that he has in the book, right? I mean, it's easy to stroke Norrell's ego uh, in the book. Um, here, he seems to be genuinely less interested in the praise of the world. Um, and more, more genuinely shy. Not just awkward, not just preferring his own company, um, but genuinely disliking to be around other people at all. And I don't think we get that quite as clearly. Um, even to the point where he, he, he prefers being al- he, he would rather be alone um, than get any credit for anything, than get any praise, right? And again, that's the, the, the praise and adulation of others clearly means a lot to Norrell in the book. Um, yeah, Cynthia, you're right that the party isn't that party is an introvert's nightmare. It absolutely is, though again, that's it's very it follows very closely the description of the party uh, in the book. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's. Uh, but anyway, the um, of course I'm going to want to come back and talk about the context of this scene. That is how. Uh, how the meeting between Vinculus and Noro is contextualized, and the significance of the difference. It's, of course, a major shift from Vinculus sneaking into Noro's house and bursting in upon him in his own sitting room, and um, and uh, uh, Noro's meeting with him in the back alley uh, of this other woman's house here, as we see uh, in the film. So be thinking about the significance of that shift, because I want to come back to that in a minute. Uh, Nancy, you're right. Uh, Drawlight himself is also an introvert's nightmare. Totally agree. The rain shall make a door for me. And I shall walk through it. Oh, yes, you think yourself a very fine fellow. Holding books like a miser would go. Open up! Well, I have a book, sir. A book you won't find in your library or any other. It's written by the Raven King. And it tells me all about you. Vincilus, magician of Threadneedle Street, at your service. Well, know this. Magician. Your coming was foretold long ago. I've been expecting you these past 20 years. Now I've come to explain your destiny to you, as is written in my book. Prophecies, is it? Well, magic cannot see into the future, and rascals who claim otherwise are liars, 
says after this Nora will never attend another party ever again yeah yeah exactly um yeah I, I, you know so many good observations you guys have been making um Caritas points out that he truly looks he looks truly terrified uh though spunky I agree it's a really interesting point Carita because of course he is very fearful um his name is fearfulness right you know as, as part of the part of the prophecy right there um and yet He's not completely spineless. He's not merely mousy, right? He's intimidated. Even the way in which he sort of perks... Did you say two, right? He sort of perks up at various points. Um, of course, uh, Vinkua seems to get his attention when he talks about having a book uh, that he, that Norrell has never seen, too. But, uh, you know, it, even then, you know, when he breaks away and yells at him, right? Um, he's not just spineless. He's not simply weak. Um, so, anyway, I, I really... Uh, I really, I really loved that. Um, anyway, um, going back to some of your observations, um, Kimber. Yes, I like his London wig too. Uh, I, I thought that actually the wigs were something I was really paying attention to. I thought it was really interesting to see who wears a wig and who doesn't wear a wig, and the different wigs that they wear. Because Kimber, of course, you're right that Mr. Norrell's wig when he goes to London is different than that wig he was wearing when he was in his own library uh, at Hertview. Um, so uh, uh, anyway, okay. And what things do you notice? First, let's talk about that question that I asked. Um, that question that I asked before we started, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, Karita, you're right. The hats are also are also fun. Um, what's the difference? What is the effect of the of shifting the ground, literally shifting the ground, um, of this conversation? Um, why what's the effect we have both a complete change in the context of it as far as Norrell is concerned right Good. Michael it's more creepy absolutely now there was obviously that creepiness angle was there right there was like this strange guy burst into his room and says broken into his house right so here's this guy who's a who's actually a beggar and thief off the street right who has who has burst you know unannounced and uh you know into uh into Norrell's room this guy could be trying to kill Norrell for all Norrell knows right um so there's a creep factor there but it's it's very different right this is not 
you know, this street magician is invading the sanctum of, of Mr. Norrell, but Mr. Norrell is himself on Vinculus's turf, right? The streets, the alleys of London, that's Vinculus's turf. Um, so the ground is completely switched. In fact, it's still creepy. We get, we get that, that similar Mr. Norrell is threatened and Vinculus, in a sense, has the upper hand. Um, again, the upper hand in the book because he, he succeeds in, you know, in, in uh, penetrating into the inner sanctum there um, without being stopped and even getting away without being kicked out for quite a while. But, it, but, but it's different here. Mr. Norrell is wrong-footed in this scene, right? That is, he's, he's not on his home turf at all. Um, um, yeah, so, and John, I agree with you that the alley scene, um, it, it, there's more danger here. Um, he is more afraid and has more reason to be afraid. And as a couple people were pointing out, Nancy especially, um, that uh, Vinculus is really physical with him. It's hard to blame him for being terrified. And Nancy, I agree with you. Um, the f- not only the fact that he's like picking him up and slamming him against walls, right? But even the really creepy moment when he's like toying with the hair in his wig... Yeah, yeah, this here, right? You know, so like, okay, you've not only got you're not only out out locked out into an alley by yourself um, with this guy who is, you know, possibly drunk and probably smells bad, but then he's doing he's he's pulling this, right? He's saying these creepy things about the Raven King while he fiddles with the hair on the temple of your wig. That's creepy. Right, that's g- legitimately scary. Um, what this guy intends, right? Um, okay, good. So that's one thing, right? We see again. We see Mr. Norrell on Vinculus's ground. We see Mr. Norrell very much more threatened, very much rightfully uh, more afraid, more fearful, right? Um, but Amanda, wonderful point. Amanda Cruz says, you know, how did he know Mr. Norrell would be there at this moment? Mr. Norrell didn't even know where he was going or how he ended up there. Absolutely, Amanda. It strongly emphasizes, strongly, enormously emphasizes the prophetic power of Vinculus, right? Apart from the fact that he is adopting a much more prophetic stance all the way through this, right? Um, when he is spouting his prophecy to Norrell in the book, um, Mr. Norrell is talking over him the whole time, right? He's not even really listening. And it's, you know, I mean, it's prophetic, but it sounds more like gibberish, right? Uh, It sounds more like, or at least is more easily dismissed as, is probably the better way to say it. It's more easy to dismiss what he says in the book as the mere ravings of a crazy guy off the street, right? This has more prophetic emphasis, and I would say that, you know, Amanda, I agree with you. The fact of him being there at all um, is gives him enormous prophetic credentials from the beginning, right? Here's, you know, he goes out this door into a blind alley where he didn't know he was going to be at all, right? He's run there at the spur of the moment, and there's Vinculus standing there waiting for him, Right? Like Vinculus alone in all of the world knew that Norrell was going to be there at that time, and here he is. So even before he says a thing, um, he has a kind of prophetic gravitas about him that he just never really has um, in 
the book. And I think that that's a huge difference. We can see even the way that he knows who Norrell is, um, the fact that he sort of talks about, you know, that he accuses him of being a, you know, a, 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 a miser hoarding, or, you know, that hoarding books is a miser hoards gold. You know, the sort of moral indictment of Norrell. We saw that also in the book. Um, that is, he does present at least a little bit of kind of prophetic credential there at the beginning. Um, but it's not, um, uh, but it's not nearly so strong as in the film. And more importantly, do you remember what the thing he said in the book was that kind of established his prophetic credentials before he started spouting his thing? Do you remember what that was? I think it's very significant in the context of what we see in the film. Um, And that was he chides him for delaying so long. Exactly, Carita. I've been waiting what took you so long, right? What took you so long to come to London? And Mr. Norrell feels a little smitten in his conscience, right? Because he delayed his coming to London. Um, In the film version, the delay is much more strong, and Mr. Norrell's uh, sort of guilt about not coming to London sooner. This, that is to say, to say that in the, in, from a, the different direction, the call that Mr. Norrell acknowledges to himself that he felt, right, the urgency of coming and bringing back English magic um, was openly avowed by him, well, okay, openly, avowed by him to himself, right? Um, he squarely recognized it and addressed it in the book. In the film, he doesn't. He just doesn't do that. Um, we see him perfectly willing never to come to London in the first place, and even eager to leave, um, prematurely leave. Um, so we see that that's really just not the case. But again, in the film, not only is that displaced, uh, but his, but as I say, the prophetic um, stature of Vinculus is much, much, much higher. Um, yeah, good. Neil points out that here in the uh, in the alley, he is also a captive audience to Vinculus. Neil, I agree. That's another really important point. Um, it's not just that um, he's on Vinculus's turf; he's trapped on Vinculus's turf. Right? Um, he cannot. He is here on the street with the street magician, and he can't get out of it. He cannot return his own world, um, the gentleman's world, through the door there is, he can't get, he's been locked out of it. Um, So in its way, it would seem to sort of foreshadow the locking away of the magician in the, sort of in the column of darkness at the end, right? Um, But we'll see. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, And Nancy, good point. Um, His calling for Childemus is quite different from his calling for Davy and Lucas in the book. Yeah, he's not just calling for muscle. Right uh, to get rid of the to kick this vagabond out of his house, um, and not only that, but of course <clears throat> to sort of chide his footman for enabling this guy to get to him in the first place. Um, but um, instead, he's calling for Childemus, and is there a, is there a hint of blame there? Right, like Childemus, this is your fault. Like, why am I in London? Um, because of course, Childemus himself has. I, it has always has in the book, but I think in the film even more strongly, 
this uh, you know this sort of lurking dark very Yorkshire presence uh, of Childemus uh, to me is much more Raven Kingish uh, as it was. When I was reading the book for the first time, my first suspicion about Childermas was that he was a fairy servant of Mr. Norrell's. Um, when we first met him, that's what I was assuming. Soon after that, I began to suspect that Childermas was actually the Raven King in disguise. I think had I seen the miniseries first, I would have been much more suspicious that Childermas was the Raven King. Um, I think I would have given that up much less quickly. Um... Oh, oh, and uh, the uh, the way that he ends when he says... Uh, oh, oh, wait, hang on a second. First, let me respond to Mick's comment. Mick makes a great point. He says, why is Norrell so sure that magic can't, magic can't predict the future? Well, Mick, one thing that that clearly shows... Again, we can see him being, in Carita's word, spunky here, right? And standing up for himself and sort of defying Vinculus. But his defiance sounds empty, right? We have seen... I mean, I, I, I think that we as viewers have very little reason to question Vinculus's words here. Um, because just by being here, waiting, lying in wait for Norrell, where he had no, you know, no non-supernatural way of being able to tell that he was going to be, um, makes it pretty clear that prophecy really happens. So yeah, so Mick, when he starts saying, um, uh, you know, magic can't predict the future, and anybody who says that is a liar... It's sound. It's defiant, but it sounds like empty defiance, right? I mean, that's clearly that's clearly nonsense. Um. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, John, I agree that I agree that he is calling for Childermas out of an immediate desire for help and protection. No question. I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to say that he's just calling him in to blame him. But again, I think that there's there there sounds to me an element of that. Um, that again, not of blame exactly, but of like get me out of this situation that you got me into. Um, this is Childermas's kind of situation, right? This is this is you know it, he needs to be here to bail him out. You know, like we had this discussion, and I was afraid that I might get put into you know a dangerous and compromised situation in London, and and now here I am. Childermas, come rescue me. This was your idea in the first place. Anyway, it seems to me that there's that there's uh, there's an element of that there. Um, but speaking of Childermas, let's um, let's go ahead and look. It's a little bit of a uh, of a um, distraction from well, not distraction, a slight detour from looking at Norrell. But I want to look at the the cards scene because it's awesome. So where's this book of yours? I never had my book. You'll never even see it. It's my inheritance. From who? The Raven King. Well, you can't hide the truth from me. The cards of Marseille. Shall we see your fortune? For the present, your actions are coming by a hermit. This one tells me you've weighed your choices and made a decision. This one tells me what it is. You go in one dream. You've a message to deliver. To him. The Knight of Wands. 
Children's looking a little feral there here at the end. Um, yeah, the uh, the the yeah, Nancy, the scene with the cards flying everywhere. Yeah, and you know, the, the, you know, it's like, like the feathers, right, for the Raven King that Vinculus would throw up in the air, and uh, and yeah, that evolution of the smudge, uh, so brilliant, so well done, you know. And 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 yeah, I agree, um, uh, Nancy. How you know how you see him lick his thumb. So it looks plausibly like a smudge at the beginning, right? You know, and that's obviously what Childermas thinks it is. Really, really, really. I, I, I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Karita asks, "Do I think this scene leaves open the idea that maybe Vinculus swapped the cards out?" I don't think so, Karita. And the reason I don't think so is that Childermas drew the deck himself, so he would immediately respond by. I, I, could this have been done by non-magical means? I don't think it could have been done by non-magical means because it was hand-drawn by Childermas himself. That is, if he, Vinculus, had brought in a separate deck loaded with Raven King cards, right, um, he would have... Uh, that Childermas... <laughs> my, my pronouns are awful. Childermas would immediately have noticed that that was not his king, right? He drew the king. Right, so he knew what the king looked like, and instead he doesn't say that. He just responds to the smudge, like "That's my card, and you smudged it." And he's mad at him for smudging his card. Immediately recognizes it as his uh, as as his cards. And John, I agree. Even the backs of the cards are are uh, you know are, are, are they're obviously handmade and unique. So it's not just that he would have had to make the cards look exactly like Childermas's cards, again from the back and everything, right? But even the even the, the the king again would have had to been copied exactly for it to have fooled Childermas the first time, right? He would have so so no. I think uh, I, I I think we can kind of rule out the idea that this was done by charlatanism, you know, that it was done by chicanery. Um, so uh, anyway, yeah, I I I, I do think uh, well. Kimber, of course, the difference in the way that the evolution of the card have you know as the card changed into the Raven King, 
Um, the way that that happens in the book, there's more that changes, right? In the differences in the film, the king himself is the same. It's the smudge that grows and takes the form of the raven. Um, so I think, um, well, I don't know. I mean, at least it's it's a it's a different kind of effect. Um, in the book, it shows that the card itself is changing. The drawing on the card, Childermas's own drawing, is changing. Um, whereas this is an intrusion upon the cards, right? Childermas's drawing is the same in every way, so apart from the fact that it's been somehow magically duplicated. Um, his card is the same all the way through. It's that smudge that's growing, as if something is coming in from behind it. And of course, it's actually not black. It's like the color of the back of the card, as if the the back of the card was like seeping through into the front. Um, but anyway, uh, it looks like this is the effect is of some outside magic, some raven-related magic breaking into the magic that Childermas, the magic of Childermas's cards, right? Um, whereas again, in uh, in the book, the effect is of Childermas's cards themselves being the instrument, being made into the instrument of the Raven King's magic, and coming to depict personally the Raven King himself, not just to bear the stamp of the Raven. So, I mean, those two things do seem the the the, the two depictions accomplish kind of different things. But I do love the way that it works. Um, I, I I think it was a great choice, um, a great choice in the film, but. Childermas's response is kind of unclear to me. That is, when he's bursting out and trying to catch him, is he outraged? Um, is he, uh, is he, you know, like, the question, what is Childermas thinking and feeling right now, um, at this moment, you know, where I've frozen it in the, in the show? It's not obvious to me. It could be a couple different things, right? Um, and uh, Childermas is such, to me, such a such a uh, uh, a mysterious um, character um, in the uh, in the film, especially um, that I find this especially I find this particularly tantalizing. Um, after this, of course, um, Mr. Norrell has his moment of glory. In Parliament, right? I'm thinking, of course, now at the beginning of episode two, is his moment of glory in Parliament when he's done the thing with the uh, with the the ships um, off the French coast. I have to admit, I was puzzled. That was the of, in the first two episodes, there was only one moment that I found really confusing, where the plot, as they were depicting it in the film, didn't seem to me to make much sense, and that was that business with the French and the ships. That is, as far as I could see on the screen, the on-screen depiction gave the impression that the French figured out that the ships were not real ships in about 15 minutes. And so I'm sitting here thinking, what exactly did this illusion accomplish? I mean, they're all acting like he accomplished something awesome, other than intimidating the French for about half an hour. Um, But in the in the on I don't know I mean I I didn't get the sense that a whole lot of time passed between when the when the you know the mystery fleet appears and when the French actually penetrate the illusion um so it wasn't clear to me what exactly had been accomplished but anyway 
the point is we lead up to the glory of Mr. Norrell, right? You know, when he's being applauded in Parliament and he's looking all sort of small and cute and smug. Um, but even cuter, of course, is Norrell's happiness when he is connected with Jonathan Strange. Um, I thought that uh, the actor who played Norrell did such a good job. Um, I loved his acting in the scene where he know, he sees Jonathan's magic, right, with the, with the book in the mirror. Um, and he's so excited about it. Uh, and then, you know, his, his, his happiness and, uh, you know, making up his course of studies, uh, for Jonathan, uh, you know, I, I thought that, um, the, you know, the, the way that his, his genuine happiness was emphasized, um, was, was really wonderful. And yet, although we've seen all the positives that have come, right, um, his moment of glory in parliament, his happiness, uh, in having found a friend, someone that he can really talk to, um, he is quick to kind of go back in the other direction. Um, when Karita uh, uh, <laughs> says in his adorable little hat, uh, yes, yes, his hat is adorable. Um, his ador his 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 adorable little hat and his adorable big wig. Um, but anyway. Remember when Jonathan Strange tricks the books out of him, right? When he tricks the forty books uh, out of him to take on campaign. In the in the book, we get the narrator telling us that Mister Norrell has the thought that he wonders if it was worth it, right? That you know, is anything that he has achieved worth the loss of forty books? Um, but that seems we get the impression in the book that it's a passing thought, right? Um, it's merely an expression of his anxiety and fussiness at that particular time. Mr. Norrell in the film seems to be quite serious about that. Um, and it's of a piece with what we've seen before. His second guessing of what he's done in coming to London is common. He was packing up to go, right? When Drawlight and Lascelles show up, his servants are actually putting his books in boxes in the background. He fully intends to leave London. We've seen already that Norrell is not 100% committed uh, to this whole restoration of English magic and, and, and going public with magic thing. Um, he's actually going to abort the mission and go back to Hurtview. Uh, and so when he says that, again, it seems to me to have a stronger impact. Uh, there's, there is, again, to me, the sense that Norrell is not 100% committed uh, to the whole idea. But um, lest I totally run out of time, even for my comparatively modest goals tonight, let's shift to talking about Jonathan Strange. I have to say... The casting of Jonathan Strange I didn't love at first. Um, when I first met Jonathan Strange, the scene when he's peeking in through the church window and, uh, you know, when he's first talking to Arabella, um, I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't love that depiction, mostly because he was, um, well, a little bit more more rat-faced and less t less handsome than I had pictured him. I and mean, we were told that he's a he's a very handsome, striking man. And uh, I was kind of... <clears throat> especially when I saw how tiny and cute Mr. Norrell was, I, um, I sort of was expecting Jonathan to be even taller than he was. He's tall, but he's not quite as tall. I think he's not quite as tall as Childemus. I mean, he's taller than Norrell, but who isn't taller than Norrell? Um... Uh, Lady Pole is taller than Norrell, but um, but he's but anyway, Strange isn't th there isn't quite so much of a visual contrast 
um, as I was kind of expecting. Nor, again, is he sort of, like, devastatingly good-looking either. Um, um, I mean rat-faced in the nicest possible way, Karita. I'm not trying to, not trying to, to, to insult him exactly. Um, it's, but you have to admit, he has, you know, kind of, uh, kind of, like that, that, I mean, his smile, it kind of grows on you, but, um, uh, but ferret-faced, okay, all right. I'm willing to compromise on ferret instead of rat. Um, but Nancy, you're right. Segundus is is much more good looking than Jonathan Strange, and that struck me as that struck me as as odd, um, as slightly discordant. Um, Jonathan Strange just does not look like somebody when you first see him in the film. Does not look like somebody who's going to naturally be the life of the party, and that everybody's going to sort of socially gravitate to. I mean, that's one of the things that we see about Jonathan Strange is that he is as socially smooth and competent as Norrell is awkward and incompetent, and that contrast didn't seem to me as sharp as I sort of expected it to be. Um, notice, of course, with that we see, of course, a great emphasis on the cruelty of his father, right? Uh, Jeremy Johns emphasizes the cruelty, you know, sort of the torturous cruelty of his father, which really serves to underscore uh, the heartlessness of his treatment of Jonathan, as well as to uh, give a, a, a kind of an ominous emphasis to the few references that are made to the way that he made his late wife's life a misery. Um, so anyway, I am... Um, uh, and Nancy, yeah, I found those allusions to his mother uh, interesting as well. Um, especially, Nancy, that moment when um, Jonathan says to Arabella after they're married that uh, uh, that he hopes that she will not have any reason to complain of her have that she won't have as much reason to complain of her husband as his mother did right um that he is concerned about following in his father's footsteps as far as being a bad husband is concerned um but um anyway so uh, yeah, Karita says that Jonathan's smile while walking away from the graveside made me laugh. Karita, I think that was the moment where he started to grow on me a little bit more. I'm fine with Jonathan Strange by the end of episode two. I've I've been reconciled uh, to him, um, but uh, it was just the initial. It didn't fit my initial expectations, I think. But uh, his smile did kind of win me over anyway. Um, but um, but anyway, yeah. So it was. Um, it was, yeah. Of course, that that we didn't get the fairy tale element of the father's cruelty, right? With Jeremy John's, you know, trip through the briars and everything like that. Now, again, hardly surprising that they cut that um, for the sake of efficiency. And we did get the cruelty anyway, and the you know, sort of the him bringing about his own death, um, his uh, conspiring in his own destruction, which is like connected to the prophecies, right? Or at least foreshadowing the prophecies. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, so the way that they set it up was interesting. But what we didn't get is that association, the sort of vague association between Jonathan Strange and Fairy that the book gave us, which I think is which I think is interesting. I think is important. Um, notice the juxtaposition too. Again, this is to me the most striking moment of that change of of moving. Strange's story forward, so that we're going back and forth between Strange and Norrell from much earlier on in the story. Um, the way that uh, the the juxtaposition 
um, Carita, that scene when he's walking away from the graveside with the smile on his face. Um, that is Jonathan Strange coming into his inheritance and his freedom and his occupa- and now free to pursue some occupation. And we Im- it immediately cuts to Mr. Norrell in his carriage riding through the gate and entering London, right? Um, you know, leaving his retirement. And I thought that was a lovely juxtaposition, you know, this idea of, you know, both of them have been sort of hiding their talents. Mr. Norrell uh, in his library, Jonathan, because he was never able to really consider any profession, so he didn't stumble aco- across the profession of magician. But that sense of now both of their careers can really begin uh, at the same time and showing. And, but again, you see, you see the difference, right? This is not... Mr. Norrell is fully established and, in fact, a figure of national recognition before we ever even really are introduced to Jonathan Strange, before we ever really know that he exists. Um, whereas there's this sense in the film that they're both really kind of launching off into the world at the same time. Um, even though, again, there's no question that Norrell was a magician first, but nevertheless, um, there's, that, there's that greater sense of equality in that sense from the beginning. Um, let's look at Jonathan's first act of magic here. Okay. Jonathan doing magic for the first time. And uh, now, the flowers must be arranged like so. Just like that? You just kind of flop them down there? Draw a circle on the mirror like this. And then I quarter the circle. Jonathan, where did you get this nonsense? From the man under the hedge. Henry, do at least try it. That is not your ceiling. Yeah, uh, Janita Shelton points out that it's it's kind of like the Amadeus movie, you know, the sort of wild and cheeky genius Mozart. Um, yeah, yeah, Jonathan Strange is really kind of depicted as a wild and cheeky genius magician, right? Um, it's um, it's it's really haphazard. It does John's word, uh, John Moline's word, really haphazard spellcasting. He's totally incautious about uh, his spellcasting. And and notice there's... He is expecting not to be taken seriously. He himself doesn't seem to be taking himself very seriously, right? It's like, oh, here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to put these flowers, and so he just picks up these random, like, dried flowers that are sitting there at the table. It's like, hey, you put them here, and he, you can see he drops one across the mirror, and then just kind of sweeps it off, right? He's not, and then he says, and you draw a circle, and then all he does is draw a circle and quarter it. He says nothing. He says no magic words, right? Um, he's just got a mirror in which he's dragged his finger across in a couple ways. 
Um, and he doesn't, and, and the, the, you know, the, I got this, you know, for, for you know, uh, remember when, uh, Henry says, where did you get this spell again? He says, you know, from the, from the man who was under the hedge, right? He's clearly not taking it really seriously, even though he seems about to, um, you know, sort of protest here to Henry that is like, you know, you should, you should at least give it a chance and sort of take it seriously. He's not really taking it seriously. Um, and yet, um, and yet it works, right? Somehow, for some reason, it works. He he just, um, yeah, make it. It does only work for somebody with magical aptitude, I guess. Though we don't know right exactly how it you know how it works or why. But he doesn't know how it works or why either, right? You know, this first spell that he does, he does almost by accident, right? Um, and I think that that's a really important that's, well, I was going to say it's a really important thing. It's something that the film strongly emphasizes. Indeed, it seems to be the primary point of contrast between Norrell and Strange, right? Norrell and Strange differ in their book learning, obviously, in the book as well. But Strange in the uh, in the film is not merely lacking book learning, he has this intuitive flair for magic, um, which he doesn't understand even much at all. Now, I have a question for you. Who appears in the mirror in this scene? Did you notice that? So, they're looking at... Okay, they're seeing the ceiling. Now he picks it up. Okay, that's his arm, right? You can see it's, it's, it's the clothes he's wearing. So, he's seeing... And that's him? Is it him? Is that him? He's not in that room. I'm like turning my head upside down here. Is that Jonathan? Probably him. Why is he in the room in the mirror when the when it's not showing the room? But anyway, okay, so that's him. And that's still him? Right? Still him? Somehow? Looking over his shoulder at the room that's not behind him? That's him too? Right? And that's Norl? I love the eye that we get there. Um, What does this show us? What do we make of this? Why is he in the mirror? Why is he seeing himself in the mirror? Yeah, Donna was suggesting, yeah, uh, maybe it is that he is his own enemy. Um, Good, Kimber is bringing up the question of identity. He and Norrell are both his enemy, and of course he and Norrell are connected, right? Um, Maybe they're even connected from this earliest point, right? Um, At least, it's to me, uh, it's the kind of thing which when I first saw it, I didn't think anything of it. Because, of course, he's holding a mirror. Of course he sees his own face in the mirror. Why wouldn't he see his own face in the mirror? But... The re- he's not seeing the room behind him, right? 
why would he see his face in the mirror if the mirror is not any longer reflecting, but rather give, providing him a window to somewhere else, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, right. You know, Mick says, yes, uh, Strange's face is shown as a reflection. It's the background that is the magic bit, but, but, but why should that be? Again, the whole point, what draws Arabella's attention to it is that the mirror is no longer being a reflection, right? It's not showing Henry's ceiling. It's showing the ceiling of some other room. It has ceased to be a reflector and has become a window through to somewhere else, and yet Strange appears there as well. Anyway, I'm not trying to make it too, like, deep and everything, but it does... It, it did strike me as uh, as kind of interesting, and of course I love the moment when... Uh, Nora looks over his shoulder at him, right? Like he can, uh, let's see, where is it here? Yeah. When he can sort of tell that somebody's looking at him. Um, he emphasizes that he can't control the magic, right? It's not just that he doesn't know what he's doing but that he can't control it. Like, it just comes out of him and he can't help it. This is how he talks to John Segundus when they meet in uh, uh, in the ruin. Notice how they they allied, stare across, um, uh, uh, stare across with, uh, with the, the Shadow House, um, Maria Absalom's house, um, which I found really funny, because you remember I did that by accident when we were talking about the book at one point. Um, I, I don't know if you remember that, but I made that mistake. Um, uh thinking about Staircross and when they're overlapping at the end and 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 I I myself overlapped it with the Shadow House and so I, I laughed and thought it was funny that they actually combined those two uh in the film um but uh, but anyway the, the emphasis in that conversation with Segundus and and Honeyfoot his major emphasis is and it's not just I don't know how to do anything. It's not just I wish I had more resources. If I if I had more access to more books, I could I could do more. It's not just that you know he he's trying to find somebody who can teach him. Like that's why he was trying to get in touch with Maria Absalom. But rather, he says that he can't control it. I don't remember Jonathan Strange ever saying that he couldn't control the magic. That it just kind of spontaneously came out of him. Um, so we get to the scene where he does he has his sort of trial of magic uh before Noro. Um and I would add at the beginning here, I love the fact that it's the Friends of English Magic that he puts into the mirror. Right? Not only the the sort of the beauty of this being Noro's own publication, right? That he's gonna send uh Noro's publication, Noro's anti fairy publication into fairy, right? Which just seems really really delightfully fun, um, but also kind of a, a really apt sort of satirical comment, right? The Friends of English Magic, as Jonathan Strange has said himself, like a more ironical name for uh, uh, f- uh, for a publication he's never heard, right? Um, as he finds, of course, the contents of the Friends of English Magic highly hostile uh, to English magic. Um, in other words, it's only a it's not real. There's no real substance to it, right? So when you see the Friends of English Magic lying there, mirror reversed and insubstantial to the touch, it's almost like a satirical version of what the Friends of English Magic really is, right? At least in Jonathan Strange's mind. Uh, and I, I really loved uh, how that worked. But this, of course, is the description, is uh, the end of that conversation when Norrell is asking Strange how he did the magic. I apologize, sir. I'm 
bring it back. To own the truth, I have only the haziest notion of what I did. Well, how did you do it if you did not know how you did it? It's like music playing at the back of one's head. Do you understand what I mean, Mr. Norrell? Hearing it for the very first time, and yet one somehow simply knows what the following note will be. Yes. Yes, I do understand what you mean. What a lovely study in contrasts, right? Between, let's see, between Norrell's face here and Strange's face here, right? Um, just wonderful. Um, I agree with several of you um, that Norrell does not really seem to understand at all. Um, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> Nancy Fosberg thinks that Childermus might have some private thoughts about this. Uh, yes, I actually, I really like looking at Childermus in the background here. Um, you know, we've got, uh, so yeah, Arabella comes over. Notice we've got Strange in the mirror. Right, mirrors are always importantly placed, I think, in this, uh, in this show. And here's Childermus watching in the background, right? staring at Jonathan Strange as he's talking about this and then his gaze when Norrell is reacting his gaze shifts to Norrell right um, which I think is really cool um, he he knows yes Mick he understands Childermus gets it he might get Jonathan Strange's description more than Norrell does but in any case he certainly gets Norrell and what's going on with Norrell, right? Now, it's now when he says, I know what you mean, when Norrell says, I know what you mean, um, I think that it's actually not entirely untrue. He's not just faking. Uh, he's not just playing along. He is playing along, but he's not just playing along. There's more to it than that. Um, when he says, yes, yes, I know what you mean, um, how I take that is that he understands that... Str- it's not that he's saying, or at least not that he's honestly saying, I totally feel the same way. He obviously does not feel the same way about magic that Strange does. But he does seem to get it. Remember, he was, his, his initial delight at discovering Strange has passed away. Right? It's, it's passed on and now it's been replaced by the consternation, uh, which is written so plainly um, across his face right here, right? That he... What he's getting is, holy cow, this guy has a totally different relationship with magic. I mean, even his initial question, right? How did you do it if you didn't know what you were doing, right? You know, how is it possible? He obviously cannot really comprehend that at all. And yet, when he hears Jonathan Strange explain it, he recognizes, he seems basically, he believes Jonathan Strange really does experience magic that way. Um, and he seems to feel threatened, inadequate, right? This is a worried face that we're seeing here as he's hearing <clears throat> Jonathan describe this. Um, so it's the, the thing that is strongly emphasized in the books is the likeness between the two of them, and especially Norrell's 
embracing of the likeness. He 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 admires Strange. He respects Strange. He uh, um. But it's because he now has somebody he can talk to about magic. Right now, there's somebody else who understands him. The difference, the separation between Norrell and Strange is, I think, much more strongly emphasized uh, in the um, in the show. Uh, they have a fundamentally different relationship to magic. I don't think that you could say that in the book. Um, there are differences between them, but it's their magic isn't, or their relationship to magic isn't fundamentally different. It is clearly fundamentally different. Um, in uh, uh, in in the film, and the emphasis on Strange being this kind of incredibly naturally gifted uh, person we don't get it's again it's 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 there in the book but it is not foregrounded I think nearly to the same extent and of course the primary emphasis on this the primary uh, uh, illustration of the sort of contrasting approach a contrasting relationship um, with magic um, that we get is of course the two parallel uh, magical performances that we get at Portsmouth between the two of them, right? Which is just my uh, uh, my my favorite part of this whole episode. Um, so let's look at uh, let's look at Norrell's performance first. and become our enemies. Trade is ruined by the war. The harvest has failed for two straight years and the king has gone mad again. Everywhere, things are going to ruin. Apart, of course, from magic. Magic has become a booming industry. And here, Norrell appears to be doing nothing, as far as they can tell. Very showy, Norrell. Good job. It is done. The sea defenses are now in place. I cannot see anything. You will not see anything. They are invisible. But they are there. It is done. For the record, Mr. Norrell, I think, never looks cuter than at this moment right here. I mean... You just like, don't you just want to hand him a little sand pail and shovel, right? I mean, how adorable does he look in this moment? So great. Um, but yeah, the, the, so the sight of the back of Mr. Norrell standing there silently. Now, from the front, we can see the intensity of his concentration, right? And the fact that he's actually saying these magic formulas. Um, but from the back, it looks like he's just standing there doing nothing while... You know, Sir Walter Pohl emphasizes all of the terrible things that are going on, um, that are that are going on in the country, um, and then his his so delightful. I just love his. He knows, right? He knows that he should attempt some kind of showmanship, right? It's like he's already had this talking to probably by, um, uh, probably by uh, 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 Lascelles and Drawlight, right? So here, here's the moment where he's like, oh yeah, um, 
Right, it's supposed to be supposed to do something spectacular. Okay, all right. Um, yeah, right. That's right. They're going to be expecting. Here it comes. I'm going <laughs> to gently wave my arms and go like that. That'll that'll convince him. It's obvious that this has nothing to do with his magic, right? This is showmanship by Mister Norrell. Um, and then he just turns around. It is done. Uh, just love it. Yeah, Mick, I, I agree. He looks very Hobbit-like. Absolutely. Sarah Lagarde says he's as alone in a crowd on the beach as he is in his library at Hurtview. Um, very different, of course, from his colleague. And by the way, I apologize. My my uh, my version of this, the resolution kept getting bad, so the, rev- the resolution is going to vary a bit. Do not adjust your screens. kind of says it all. Um, I, a bunch of things we could say. I like uh, LaSalle's face too, right? The, you know, the, 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 the way they're all kind of staring out. Um, we see uh, uh, Mick, yeah, uh, uh, Norrell just in shock about this, right? Um, what do we see here? Now, I mean, he's more showy, no question, right? Uh, with a lot of help from the composer of the score <laughs> of this show. I mean, man, you know, notice there was no music at all when Norrell was doing his magic, right? He was just standing there. I bet if you actually went back over that scene with Norrell, um, you know, where Norrell was casting his spell and you put in some decent music, it would be much more moving, right? If you showed his face, like, scrunched up like he was, you know, and say, and there was some, some kind of music in the background, um, it would have a much, it would have a much, uh, much better effect. Uh, it, it would, it would, it would be a little bit more, more impressing, more impressive. But, however, um, that, it's not just that, right? It's not just that, that he's, and he's not just more showy in the sense of, I'm a better performer, right? There does seem to be an element of performance, I think. Um, I mean, certainly, like, the gesture that he makes before he goes down and grabs the sand is more extravagant. But at the same time, the whole thing seems to be really pretty spontaneous. I mean, of course, his face is much more 
um, extravagant too, right? Is is uh, is much more expressive, and that's private, right? No one's seeing his face. He's not doing that for show. Um, it's again that spontaneous. So I don't think this is just a question of who's a better performer. I mean, Vinculus is a better better performer than the both of them, right? That's not really the point. Um, yeah, Michael, it does show the, uh, the the effort, the exertion that he is undergoing, as was Norrell, right? Norrell was undergoing um, exertion as well, um, uh, though he wasn't uh, he wasn't showing it. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Neil Ottenstein wonders if Lascelles and Drawlight wonder whether they've backed the wrong magician. Uh, yeah, I mean, they never seem to question that. That is, they, they never raise the the the, uh, the possibility, um, which is itself an interesting kind of point when you think about it. But that doesn't seem to be that doesn't seem to be where they are here. But but I agree, they do sort of look that way uh, in this scene in the film. Um, Mister Norrell's expression here, his sort of shock at what Strange is doing, again seems to me to be not just like wow, how did he do that? Or not just like, I feel really inadequate, even though I'm wearing an awesome three-pointed hat, um, you know, three-corner hat. But rather, um, his his expression seems to be, like, just basically, this is completely alien. Like, what is this? Who taught him to do that? How can anybody do that? Um, I, I, I mean, again... Th- I think that the the film st- s- emphasizes much more the distance between the two of them. Not just... I mean, I, I felt at times that the book was really emphasizing, really trying to suggest that Jonathan Strange was by far the more powerful magician of the two. Um, there's that. I mean, he seems certainly seems to be more talented in the fact that he can do all this stuff kind of naturally without even understanding how he's doing it. Um but uh, but again, to me here, this is just the sense of like, what the heck is this, right? I mean, he almost has the look of you think back to the looks of the of the Society of York magicians when the stones come alive and speak to them, right? The incredulity with which they greet that spectacle. Um, this seems almost to me like that. Um, Sharon Hoff thinks that he's he's saying something almost like, how could you? Right, that there's a there's a, a, a kind of a disappointment or nearly betrayal um, in it. I can see that too. Um, this he certainly seems to be to some extent, uh, at least uh, at least a bit appalled. Um, well, speaking of appalling, uh, there's the sub. There's also the subject of how little I've managed to get through tonight. But let's get to fairies at least at the beginning here. We'll come back to it, of course, next time. I wanted to talk about Stephen Black next time, anyhow. Um, but uh, let's at least start the conversation about about fairies here. Of course, we'll continue looking at uh, this sort of difference, and I'll be interested to see from here how, having started them off as not only sort of distant, but in a sense kind of pointed in different directions, right? Um, at the beginning of the story here, I'm really interested to see how they carry on with this and how they bring this uh, towards the end. Um, especially thinking back to the, the way that that mirror image in, uh, that is the, the image in the mirror um, in Strange's first spell there in Henry's house um, did kind of juxtapose them, right, with Strange's face in the foreground and Norrell uh, there in the background. But anyway, you know, as if, again, as if Strange were there in Norrell's house when he was not yet. But anyway, on to fairies. Um, 
remember the uh, the the conversation uh, um, about fairies and fairy servants that Norrell has um, in Mrs. Wintertown's house. You know, uh, when he's having his meeting with Lady. Well, I guess he's at Walter Pohl's house. Mrs. Wintertown is visiting. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, where he says that fairies are mythological, a, a, a sentence that shocked me when I first saw it. But then, of course, he immediately clarifies um, that is to say they're not at all like the stories about them. Um, and I thought that was a, re- you know, it, it, that was a really sort of fascinating move by Norrell. That is, he seems to want to actually say there's no such thing as fairies, right? Fairies aren't really true at all. But then he backs, he immediately backs down from that. Like he knows he can't possibly really maintain that. No one's going to actually buy that. He can't go that far. Instead, he just satisfies himself with saying, um, that's not how they really are, right? There's more to it than that. Um, let's, uh, and I think we'll, I think we'll end with this, um, cause it's a longish clip and I don't have any prayer of getting any further than this, but, um, but that's fine. Let's look at the introduction of the, of the gentleman with the thistle down hair. Norrell's afraid to turn around. Who in the world are you? I am the greatest magician of the age. I, I am the man who is destined to restore magic to England. Help me. I must confess that in 
recent centuries, I have grown somewhat tired of the society of my cousins and servants. I have need of new companions, and this young woman would be a charming companion indeed. All right. What do you think? What do you think of the gentleman with the thistle down hair? Um, first, let's start with that. Let's just start with the de- with the depiction of the gentleman himself. Um, let's see. Who was? talking about the voice effects. Um, oh, Carita was asking about that. Um, the voice effects are kind of striking, right? Um, the kind of uh, sort of reverb sort of effect that you have, I love it. Um, it on the one hand, it, it clearly shows this is somebody... It's not just somebody who can do magic, right? Norrell can do magic. These are not two magicians talking to each other. Um, his voice is alien. It sounds weird. But I love the way that they give it that kind of echoing quality. Um, in my mind, anyway, it foreshadows the kind of overlapping of fairy and England that we see at the end of the book, right? The gentleman is sort of simultaneously being in more than one place, and it's like his voice is stretching out not just to the small enclosed room in which they are standing, but also to like the halls of lost hope as well. Uh, so cool. I think that works really, really well. Um, yeah, good. Uh, Rickle was just saying the same thing. Um, yeah, very good. Um, what do you make of his visual depiction? I mean, he's got the hair. Did the book say anything about his eyebrows? I mean, because those are awesome eyebrows. I mean, yikes, he's got the eyebrows. Let's go back to... I mean, look at that. Whew! And his suit. Very leafy. Look at that. He has a green coat in the... He he has a green coat in the book. But, I mean, there are green coats, and then there are coats which are covered with leaves, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, John, I agree with you. That's taking leaf green one step further, right? Um, Okay, good, good. Kathy Yoder says that that his eyebrows curl curl out at the ends. Well, yes. Um, Curls out. I was... I had pictured that as, like, on his head, not, like, three inches out from his head. But whatever, it's fine. I'm not... I'm a good... Look, far be it for me to criticize eyebrows like that. I mean, you know, we can only... You know, the mere mortals can merely dream of having eyebrows like that. Um, but, um... Okay, okay. He's... They certainly succeed in giving him an alien appearance. He is much more creepy 
I would say, clearly much more ominous. Um, as uh, several people were saying, you know, he, in the book he's, well, if not exactly comical, at least kind of lighthearted. He's uh, a little bit more whimsical, right, in the book. Um, he doesn't have this, appra- he doesn't speak really slowly and give off that same I am evil vibe, right, in the book. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, he seems, you can imagine hanging out with him. I mean, like Stephen Black, for instance, when Stephen Black is hanging out with him, um, Stephen is always kind of caught on, you know, caught by surprise when he suddenly finds himself transported to a different place and, and, you know, he's in the middle of, like, polishing the silver and then suddenly finds himself standing somewhere else. But yet, nevertheless, like, the kind of, the kind of conversation that he has with the gentleman is somewhat casual. Kathy Yoda goes so far as to call him almost goofy in the book. Uh, Carita says frivolous-seeming. Um, both strong ways to express this, I think. Um, uh, he has a... seems like a, a, he has a changeful, petulant temperament. Uh, no, he's like a, change, a changeful, petulant, temperamental child in the book, uh, says Sharon. Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah, he's, he's much more... I wouldn't say comical either, but lighthearted, right? Um, uh, he's so much more serious and intense... Uh, and and again, I forget who said this. Been a bunch of observations here, um, but uh, it's much more explicitly. Um, oh yeah, there it is. Oh yeah, John John Moline said um, that the the film <clears throat> betrayal is much more clearly a deal with the devil. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, Kathy, I think it's fine. That, that, that's a good way to say it. Yeah, that it's the book's depiction of him is light, whereas the film's depiction of him is heavy. Yeah, I can go with that metaphor. Um, he is a very heavy, oppressive presence. Um, and although it, you know, again, his uh, his presence in the book is startling, right? Um, Yet it's not, uh, it's not capricious. Great word, Karita. Yes, capricious is how he comes across in the book. Um, uh, whereas, yeah, more, more actively predatory in the film. Absolutely. Now, um, so yeah, I, I, I agree. I think these, these things really, uh, um, really, I think the other thing, I, I wasn't, when, it, when he first came in, when I saw this scene for the first time, I wasn't a huge fan. I mean, I like the eyebrows, but I wasn't a huge fan. And it took me a while to figure out why I wasn't a huge fan. But then I, I realized what it was, is that he looked uh, a little bit more like David Bowie in Labyrinth than I was perfectly comfortable with. Um, it took me a while to figure that out, but I, I, I finally got it. That's exactly what my problem was. Um, <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't just me. Uh, but anyhow, yeah, okay. So, um, and, and that, was, that was part of my problem, that I had a hard time shaking that for, like, the first time. I, was, I, just, I, I had to watch it several times before I could, I could really kind of orient myself uh, to this character in this film.
Um, but uh, anyway, several other things that I want to emphasize about this conversation before I let you guys go and we pick this up uh, next time. Um, two things. First, that his comment about how he has grown tired of his you know, his, uh, his friends and relations, uh, in fairy over the last few centuries, uh, and that he's, uh, he's interested in a new companion. Um, <clears throat> and the, the thing about that that interested me most is the sense that the film gives much more strongly, I think, than the book does, that Norrell, by summoning him, has drawn his attention, not just to Lady Paul, but to England, again. Again, he gives the impression, like, I haven't interacted with mortals in centuries. Like, several centuries. Maybe mm, three centuries or so, like, since the Raven King left. Um, like, so for hundreds of years, he hasn't had a thing to do with, with mortals, and then Norrell summons him back, and he's like, oh, I think I'll start kidnapping mortals again. And notice his clothing changes. He's got the leaves all over his coat. The next time we'll see him, he doesn't have leaves on his coat. Um, you know, when, after Stephen, uh, after Stephen uh, dresses him, even before that, um, he's just wearing gentleman's clothing. He's a, he accommodates his clothing to the mortals with whom he is mixing until at the end he can, um, at the end of episode two, I mean, he can go about in mortal society drawing only a few uh, 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 glances as he goes along. Um, so, um, uh, so anyway, I, I think that's, that's a fascinating thing. And again, I don't think we get that sense, at least I did not get that sense at all from the book, that, um, the gentleman had not had any interest in mortals until, uh, Norrell brought him in. He, again, Norrell's actions clearly connected him with, Lady Pole and with Sir Walter Pole's household, and therefore indirectly with Stephen Black as well, but not, um, but not mortal kind in general. Uh, so, in other words, the film seems to be placing a much greater responsibility on Nor- Norrell. Has opened the can of worms, right? Um, Norrell is the one who has, um, um, uh, sorry. Uh, this is like hashtag English professor problems. A Shakespeare line just floated into my mind, and I couldn't place what play it was from. I have, I have, uh, I have looked and seen the spider. Um, Winter's Tale. Whew. Okay. Sorry. <clears throat> sorry. Sorry. Personal problem. Okay. Anyway. Um. Uh, yes. He has. He has opened. He has opened the can of worms. He's opened Pandora's box here. Um. And I think, you know, we see this, his remorse, right? His anxiety about the consequences of what he's done. In the book, one almost gets the sense that Norrell himself has successfully, like, walled out the fact that he, you know, so, like, the fact that he did, you know, do business with a fairy once is, like, an indiscretion which he's, like, trying to forget about and he's sort of, like, wanting to let slip and if he doesn't do it, as long as he doesn't do it again, like, no harm, no foul, like, okay, yeah, it sucks for Lady Pole, no question, but um, but it's not like he's fundamentally changed English magic or something, right? Um, whereas here, Norrell seems to be operating much more firmly under the sense of there's, there's more trepidation here, there's more dread uh, from Norrell. Um, so... Um, 
Anyway, so I, I think that that's important. I think that that's really interesting. The other thing is, of course, in connection with that, um, Norrell's saying, when, when Norrell says to him, uh, shall we sign papers? He says, it's not in this clip. It's after this clip. He says, okay, you know, sh- sh- is there something I should sign? Um, and the gentleman says, no. No, there's nothing that you sign. He says, but he's going he's gonna to take something from her to signify his claim on her is the language that the, that the gentleman uses in the film and um, and again notice the significance of that at least what I take from that this is not an, a deal between himself and Norrell right there's nothing that he and Norrell need to sign right they've not made the agreement apart from the fact that a signature on paper isn't wouldn't be how it would work anyway but um, but again it's not about Norrell and the gentleman it's about the gentleman and Lady Paul, right? Norrell has merely summoned him, and in summoning him, he has brought Lady Paul to, his, to the gentleman's attention, and the gentleman is going to act. Uh, you know, he, he makes an agreement with, with Norrell about the half-her-life business. Um, but although it sounds at the end like Norrell is negotiating with him and coming to an agreement with him, that's not how he talks about it. Right, he talks about his claim on her. Um, he sees this as primarily about the two of them, and I think that that's really important. Yes, Michael, throughout, uh, Neural seems to be trying to cover up what he did. There seems to be a much more active cover-up, and more apparent need for an active cover-up, really. Um, uh, I th- so I, I do think that's significant. Well, I, w- I won't keep you extra late tonight. Um, that would be a bad way to start. Um, we're going to carry on looking at the gentleman and Norrell here at the end, and then um, segueing to Stephen Black and the depiction of Lost Hope uh, as we move forward. And then, of course, we'll get to Jonathan Strange and Lord Wellington uh, next time. So, next two episodes for next time. Thanks, everybody. Have a happy Thanksgiving uh, for everyone in America, for people outside of America. Have a good Thursday, and it's okay to be thankful even if you don't live in America. But uh, anyway, thanks, everybody. hope you have a good holiday, and I will see you guys next week at the same time. Bye now.